Welcome to episode three. Here's our first question for the week. The question came in, and I'll read as follows. You've spoken about the Rebetzin. I've never met the Rebbe. I hear all about him. How can I actually feel he cares about me if we never met? So I am with you 100%. I never met the Rebbe either. I actually had this one story that I went around with for quite a few years. I thought for sure I was by the Rebbe as a baby. And sure enough, before my mom passed away, she told me, no, I never brought you to the Rebbe. So that was pretty crushing. It kind of um, made me feel like, oh, I thought I did see the Rebbe. So I'm I'm 100% with you. I never actually met the Rebbe in person. And to be honest, I had the exact same question when I was a teen. Like I grew up in Chabad home and a Chabad school. And I was always hearing about the Rebbe, but I didn't feel any connection. And I had the same question. Like, why would the Rebbe even care about me if he never met me? So um, I myself was wondering that until I was in teen camp and in Amuna, BJJ, and I was there for the summer and they had something called Rebbe time. And it was basically where every night another counselor would go to another bunk and the counselor would share her connection with the Rebbe or something she learned from the Rebbe. And I remember clearly there was one Rebbe time where there was a counselor that came into our bunk and she came from Australia and she had the accent and she was sharing her experiences with the Rebbe, how she felt that the Rebbe cared for us and cares for us. And she was going on and on and she gave a beautiful Rebbe time. And then I don't know if it was myself or another girl who asked her, did you ever meet the Rebbe? And her answer made such an impact on me. Her response was, no, I never met the Rebbe. I lived all the way in Australia. And I remember sitting there as a teenager thinking, wow, like, look at this woman, like she's so connected to the Rebbe and she feels how much he cares about her and how much he wants of her or she she has a connection with him. And I was really struggling in that area and it made a big, big impact on me. My my first real uh, recollection of realizing that the Rebbe was such a special person was Gimel Tamuz and the the passing of the Rebbe and my father, we live in Montreal. We lived in Montreal. I still live in Montreal. My father right away got into the car with my two brothers and they went straight to New York. And when they came back home, I remember we were sitting around the dinner table and my father was always joking his way through life, laughing his way through life. I never saw him cry up until that day. And when we were at the dinner table, my father put his head down and and he was shaking and I thought he was laughing. And then I realized he was crying. And when the Rebbe passed, I believe I was about six years old, around that age, six or seven. And as a little child, I thought, wow, if my father is crying about a a man who just passed away, that must have been a really holy man. So I'm sure you've heard yourself, you know, stories from different people about their connection with the Rebbe, stories of the Rebbe. Um, the even when the Rebbe, when his father-in-law passed, when the Friedrich Rebbe um, passed, the Rebbe told us, how can you connect to the Rebbe by learning his teachings, by, and there's different ways of connecting, by writing to him, all different ways. And everybody finds their way of connecting the same way we all find our way of connecting to God. Some people, it's when they open up a sitter. Some people, it's when they talk to Hashem. Everybody has different ways of connecting 
And we have a lot of options nowadays. We have videos of the Rebbe. We have stories of the Rebbe, whether it's books or in videos or in articles. Um, I can share with you a few stories that really touched me. And even though I didn't meet the Rebbe in person, it made me realize how caring and and, and how not only caring, but the Rebbe cared for every single individual. So I'll start with a story actually about the Rebbe and a teenage girl. And it was basically a girl who was going through a really hard time. I believe it was with Rabbi Lou, who was mediating and helping the girl through her crisis. I believe the story, I heard this from Rabbi Lou from England. And so the girl um, was actually writing to the Rebbe. And at one point she wrote to the Rebbe all her problems, what she was going through. And the Rebbe's response in a letter was, I feel for you, something along those lines. Don't quote me. So the girl actually wrote back to the Rebbe, and by that time she had this relationship with the Rebbe where she could write back to the Rebbe, how can you feel for me? You're not going through what I'm going through. And again, I don't remember the words she used, but the Rebbe's response was, the Rebbe said, the Rebbe wrote to her, one day you're going to be a mother and your child is going to be teething. And when a child teethes, we know how painful it is. And a mother feels the child's pain. And then the Rebbe wrote, I too feel your pain. So that's just one example of how the Rebbe not only cared and and really related to each individual, but the Rebbe even cared about a teenager, some a, a, a young girl who was going through a hard time, and the Rebbe was able to put himself into her shoes and really be there for her. Another story, which is actually one of my favorite stories of the Rebbe, was that a man came to the Rebbe and said to him, Rebbe, I want to be your follower. Tell me what to do. What do I need to do to be your follower? And the Rebbe responded very, very simply. The Rebbe said to him, if you do one more small act, one thing better than yesterday, I'm proud to call you my follower. And that was who the Rebbe was. If you see in the videos, or you hear the stories of the lines that would stand in front of the Rebbe to get dollars. It wasn't everybody cookie cutter. Everybody looked the same. Everybody had the white shirt, the black pants, the jacket, the hat. Everyone was different in that line. Some people had long hair. Some people had dreadlocks. Some people had, you know, the full avush, the full, um, the full, right? The, um, the all the clothing as a as a chassid, as a follower. But every single person in that line was greeted with a smile, with love, with care, with kindness. And those are the qualities that I think of when I think of the Rebbe. So again, I also never met him in person. And in Tanya, it actually speaks about that the leader of the generation, the soul where the leader comes from, is connected with every single Jewish soul. So whether or not I feel connected to the Rebbe, the Rebbe is connected to me. It's the same way that in Tanya, in Chassidus, they t- we talk about that when a person sins, that their connection with God, it's as though they're taking a scissor and cutting a little bit of the connection. But when I learned Tanya as an adult, I learned that that only happens on my end. On God's end, there's no scissors that are ever cutting the connection. The connection is always there from God to me. And the same thing, obviously, the Rebbe is a creation of God and a leader of the generation. And Hashem created a leader in the way that the leader is so connected with every single Jew in the generation that again, whether or not I feel connected, the Rebbe is always connected to me. And for me, the Rebbe 
is like a loving father. So when I'm looking for guidance or I feel stuck or I feel, you know, despair, I feel like I can ask the Rebbe, Rebbe, please daven for me. Rebbe, please pray for me, help me, guide me. I'm trying to do, you know, I'm trying to follow in your ways like you taught us that we can all be leaders, we can all be shluchim, we can be leaders no matter where we are. And sometimes I just need a little bit of help. And for me, the Rebbe, if he's a loving father, he wants to help and the connection is always there, whether I feel it or not. Here's another question that came in this week. I don't like the answer of growing up by having bad things happening. That's not an ideal solution. If anything, it can make things worse. So from what I'm understanding from your question, you're asking like, or you're saying that when people answer whatever you're going through is going to make you grow up, is going to make you stronger, it's not the ideal solution. It's not a good answer. And also, if anything, it makes things worse. And I actually, what comes to mind is that somebody, like there were people who went through the Holocaust, who went through torture and lots and lots of loss and suffering and they came to the Rebbe and they would ask the Rebbe why did it happen you know maybe other people had reasons because the generation sinned like people had different reasons of why it happened but when people came to the Rebbe and asked him that question the Rebbe said I don't have the answer I can't answer how that how six million Jews could have perished in the Holocaust that's up to God to answer so I do hear from your question that it seems like Perhaps you've been through a difficult time and maybe somebody who was well-meaning, who cared, said those words to you. You know, you'll be stronger after this. You'll grow up from this. And like you're saying, in the actual situation or maybe even afterwards, that's not an ideal answer. If anything, it makes you feel worse. I've been through very dark, trying times in my life and... um if somebody would have said to me as I was going through it, Bashi, you're going to grow up from this. This is all happening for a reason. I probably would have shut down completely and not wanted to listen to another word that they say because nobody is in the position when someone's going through a hard time to say to the other person, you're going to get through this. This is going to make you stronger. There's a reason for this. Unless the actual person who's going through it is able to say that to themselves. So I don't know if this is answering your question, but I do want to share this based on my own experience, having been through a lot in my life, including undiagnosed depression, anxiety, bipolar, um, anorexia, and um, I've been hospitalized twice. So God has definitely given me a lot to handle in my life, but I really think of and again I can't speak for anybody else but myself. I like to think of the experiences that God's put that God puts us through as there as the expression in the Torah that it says kasit lame'ar which means that the purest olive oil that we use for Hanukkah for the Hanukkah lights is from the olives that have been pressed and squeezed and they go through a lot of oppression and a lot of um, kind of torture. I mean, they're olives, but they go through a very grueling process to become so pure, to become pure olive oil. And there's also a thought about Mordechai that the actual name Mordechai, and now, you know, we're very close to Purim, the actual name Mordechai 
somehow I believe it's the words mardurar. And if somebody knows more about this, please, you know, email or send it anonymously. Um, and I will include it in the next episode. But from what I've learned in school, Mordechai also comes from the words, it's, it's some type of spice. And we know that for like coffee, like when we go to Starbucks or you go to Second Cup or whatever coffee shop you have by you, the coffee beans are ground up. And that's when they're really rich and, and, and that's the best coffee, right? When it's from the actual beans that are ground. Um, so Mordechai also, like the, 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 I'm trying to look for a word, but I think it's the, the most uh, sweet smelling spice maybe, or, or spices also, they, you know, they have to be ground or think of like ground cinnamon, what we use, right? So where I'm getting at is that the experiences, and again, I can only speak for myself, the experiences that I've been through in life that God has put me through have only made me stronger. And I'm not the same person I was before I went to the hospital. I'm not the same person I was before I went through what I went through as a teenager or at any other point in my life. And definitely, definitely, I had to find the strength either from within or from others that were able to support me and to and to guide me and Again, I don't know if this answers your question, but just to paint a bit of a perspective of a of a fresh look at your question is the idea that yes, it does exist in this world that when we go through oppression, we become even stronger and more pure and more resilient. Here's another question. We just learned in class that when the Jews said na sevenishma, we will do and we will hear by Har Sinai by Mount Sinai, they were forced with the mountain crushing them if they didn't accept the Torah. Isn't that saying that Hashem, that God forced us to keep the Torah? How is that okay? So the idea that the mountain was put on top of the Jews when God said, will you accept the Torah? If not, I'll crush you with this mountain could be taken at face value like that actually happened. But the real idea of kind of being forced into accepting the Torah if we look at it with a fresh look, like we're given when we study Hasidut, when we study Tanya, Hasidic teachings, is the idea that the Jews had just witnessed so many miracles. Even the giving of the Torah was the whole world stopped. They saw lightning and they, sorry, they heard lightning and they saw thunder, like all the events adding up were going to lead the Jews no matter what to saying yes because they were living through times where they saw open miracles, they heard the voice of God. And so the idea of being forced is more like it was bound to happen that they were going to accept the Torah under those circumstances. So yes, when we accepted the Torah at Mount Sinai, it was a bit more like a given and so if we think of it as a given, then it wasn't necessarily free choice. So when we get to the story of Purim, this is why this question is so pertinent around this time, is because when we get to the story of Purim, which was a extremely different circumstances, the Jews were in a situation where they were experiencing a lot of animosity and hatred from their enemies and they hadn't heard God's voice in thousands of years. And here they were feeling extremely exiled and oppressed. And now was the time when 
the true choice of being a Jew came out. What does that mean? In the story of Purim, God was hidden. It was. It could look like a princess story, a Cinderella story. Once upon a time, and there was a queen, and she married the king, and then there was a decree, and the king, she went into his his room, and he put out the scepter, and he said, whatever you want, and then he saved them. And God's name in the Megillah is hidden. We don't even see God's name once in the story of Purim. So what does that show us? That In the situation that the Jews were in during the story of Purim, when God was hidden and they hadn't heard his voice and they didn't know how they would be saved. And it was so easy for them to not connect with God. That's when their real loyalty and connection with God kicked in. So when God's face was hidden, it looked naturally, it seemed like the story of Purim was just, again, a Cinderella story, a princess story with a, with a king. But really, God was hidden in that whole story. And if you learn the deeper meaning behind the Megillah, we'll see that every time we see King Ahasuerus, it's actually talking about God. And I learned that with a teacher in high school, and I was blown away. It was so amazing to learn the story of Purim with the perspective of every time the king said something or did something, it was actually God. So how did we accept the Torah with free choice during the story of Purim? What happened at the story of Purim was that whatever we accepted by Mount Sinai, what was fulfilled then was now really accepted. It actually was fulfilled during the story of Purim. Again, we were in a situation where we didn't see God openly, we didn't hear his voice, the Jews again were being attacked by their enemies, they were going to be killed out. And what happened? The Jews connected with God. How? We see that Esther did not rely on mer- did not rely, sorry, on na- on nature. She asked Mordechai and the Jews of that time, "Please fast for 3 days, pray to God, ask him to save us." And Esther connected with God before just connecting with, I've got this, I'm married to the king, I'll be saved. So I'm going to finish this question actually with a story that I read once about Yossi Jacobson, Y.Y. Jacobson. Um, he was at a talk in an in a auditorium and there were people that were stumping the rabbi and asking questions and there were three rabbis uh, up in front of everyone, and Yossi Jacobson was one of them, and I believe he was the third one. So one woman stood up and said to the rabbis, Rabbis, I have a question. What's going to happen when the Messiah comes? What's going to happen when Mashiach comes? And she said, I think I speak for most of the crowd in this room. We're not religious, and it says that when the Mashiach comes, when Messiah comes, at the end, you know, the 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 time of utopia, when there's going to be peace and the nations will and we'll see godliness, the people who didn't follow in God's ways are going to kind of be screwed, is what she said, in in other words. And she said to the rabbis, what do you say? So the other rabbis answered their own answer, which didn't necessarily go across to the crowd. They didn't necessarily like the answers. But one of the rabbis actually turned to Y.Y. Jacobson and said to him, yes, rabbi, what's going to happen? So Yossi Jacobson's response was that, When you look in the Torah, when you look in the Bible, you see that Moshe, Moses, looked at our generation and he was humbled. And we're talking about a leader, Moshe Rabbeinu, that was so humble. We we see the 
the verse from Moshe to Moshe, from Moshe Rabbeinu to the Rambam. There was no one like Moshe. He was the most humble. How did he look at our generation and he was humbled, especially a generation where we haven't heard God's voice in years and we're just trying to hang on and hold on to belief and trust. What does it mean that Moshe Rabbeinu looked at his generation and he saw a group of Jews that saw open miracles, the splitting of the sea, leaving Egypt, going to Harsinai, Mount Sinai, hearing God's voice, for sure it was a given that they were going to keep the Torah, that they were going to follow in God's ways. But when Moshe looked at our generation, after thousands of years of not hearing God's voice, of not seeing open miracles like they saw years ago, and not only that, but a generation that had was coming from a Holocaust, Spanish Inquisition, the Purim story, the Hanukkah story, a lot, a lot of oppression and and suffering, and still going through suffering, he saw a girl lighting Shabbat candles. He saw a boy with a kippah. He saw someone giving, being kind to someone else, and Moshe was humbled. Okay, we're going to do our last question for this week. So the question here is, I hope it's okay to ask this. Davening is so long, boring, and uninteresting. Does this mean I'm a bad Jew? So first of all, I appreciate your honesty. Just, you know, even saying, I hope it's okay to ask this, but you asked it anyways. So that's amazing. And the first thing I want to say off the bat is that there's no such thing as a bad Jew. I lived in Florida on Shlichus for three years, and there was once a woman who I was visiting her and bringing her challah or chicken soup. And she was saying to me, you know, Bashi, I'm a trefa Jew. Even my kids, they don't go to Shalom Yom Kippur. I didn't, I didn't raise them with Tyran Mitzvahs. I'm a treif Jew. And in Tanya, it tells us in chapter two in Parak Bays that we're essentially good. There's no bad part in us, none at all. So, and there's also like a famous story that there was a woman, she did every sin in the book. And then she was upset at Hashem. So she threw her shoe, I think at the Mizbeach. And Hashem was upset with her. Why was he upset with her? Not because of any of the Averas that she did. She married a non-Jew. She did this Avera, that Avera. She was a Jew at the end of the day. Hashem wasn't judging her on all the Averas that she did or the mitzvahs that she missed. She's a, she was a Jew. You know, the saying like, Yisrael, Afa Pishachata Yisrael, who a Jew, no matter how many times he sins, he's still a Jew. There's no way to take that out of us. And again, Tanya tells us that there's no bad parts in us. So, the very fact that you're asking this question proves that you're not a bad Jew. Because if you were okay with davening just being the way it is, boring, long, and uninteresting, you wouldn't have sent me this question. So it shows that you want change. You want that davening should not be long, boring, and uninteresting. But how, how can that be, right? So the fact that it bothers you shows that you're that you want change and you want to inspire and you want to grow. And again, there's no such thing as a bad Jew. We're all essentially good. And especially because we all have an Hashem inside of us. So I could definitely see how davening can be boring, long and uninteresting. Um, boring, it's the same words day in and day out over and over again, every day, same, same sitter, same words. It could be long, definitely. It takes it could take a long time to get through it. You know, if you're starting from Haidu or you're starting from Birchas Shachar, and then you're going all the way to Aleinu, especially also, you know, bring in Halal on Rish Chaydesh, 
So it definitely could be long. And uninteresting, the words, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, what you meant by uninteresting, but from what I would gather, the words maybe don't make sense. They don't mean anything to me. It's just like, blah, blah, blah. So yes, I'm with you. And let's look at davening in a different way, at, with a different perspective. My question is, why do we even daven? You know, there's that famous, famous question, like, why does Hashem need my prayers? If nothing affects Hashem and Hashem was here always and will be here always, and why does he need me to pray to him? Why does Hashem need my davening? And the answer is that, and I don't know if you ever heard this answer, but davening is for me. Davening is for us. Hashem made um, this structure, and actually it was the Anche Knesset Agadayla that created the structure of davening for us. I actually asked my Rav if it's okay sometimes that I don't actually get to open a sitter as a woman, like I'm busy and and I know that there's a very shortened version for women, but for me, sometimes I can't even do that. And I asked my Rav, if I'm talking to Hashem, like I'm Hashem, help me, you know, I don't know what to do in this situation or is that tefillah? And the Rav said, yes, that's definitely tefillah. At the same time, there's the sitter that the Anche Knesset Hagadayla created so people can have that framework and that structure and that way of praising Hashem, asking Hashem, thanking Hashem, right? It's Bakasha Haida and um sorry, Bakasha Haida. That's escaping my mind now too. So um here I am on a podcast admitting that I don't remember the third one. If anyone has um any input, please email me so I can include it in the next episode. So why does Hashem need my prayers? It's not for Hashem, it's for me. The davening is for me. And what, why, what is davening doing for me? It's so I can discover, let's discover the significance of davening if it's for me. Why would I want to daven? So davening itself, it has the power to connect me with God, whether or not I feel close to Hashem. It's, it's a way for me to say, I want to be in this relationship. I could even, it could even be I'm upset with you, Hashem, or I don't understand you, but still I'm connecting with you by opening a sitter, by talking to you. And again, sometimes me talking to Hashem is just in the middle of the day. Like I don't have a sitter and I've learned that it doesn't have to only be through a sitter, right? So davening can connect me with God. It can also put me into like a grateful mindset. We spoke about being in a place of gratitude, even if I'm experiencing a lot of hardship and pain and my situation is unmanageable, I could still be grateful. So that davening does for us. It also gives me a chance to express and ask for my needs. So we just spoke about the third step, according to the Baal Shem Tov, of sweetness, how to experience sweetness, is when I'm able to articulate and talk about things that are going on in my life. So here in davening, it's like I've said to my kids, you know, instead of saying, did you daven before we go somewhere, I've asked my kids, have you spoken to Hashem yet? He's waiting to hear from you. That's davening, that Hashem wants to hear from us. He's even okay with me saying, Hashem, I don't know where you are today. I don't even know how to talk to you. I don't even know where to start, but I need your help. Or I do want you in my life. I don't know what that looks like, right? So we kind of like can discover davening in a more positive way. And so how could davening be less long, less boring, and less uninteresting I don't have that answer necessarily because I don't know, you know, where you're coming from and, you know, which school you go to and how they do davening in school. But there is a wonderful program that um, Mrs. Labor 
um, started, which is called Grow, and it's exploring davening through like gratitude, recognition, all different. I, I, you know, it's worth looking into. That's one idea. And another idea is, which I've done is before I open the sitter, you know, there are Hasidim that would learn Hasidus and try to understand Hashem and get close to Hashem before opening the sitter. What it looks like in my life is sometimes journaling before davening, opening up a journal and writing, Dear God, and then writing to, to God like my real thoughts, my, my deepest, you know, pain or whatever I'm going through. And that might help to open a sitter. And yes, I may not understand every tefillah and I may not understand every everything and I may be just counting down the minutes to when I'm going to close my sitter, but there is so much um there's there's so much power in davening that I myself had had a hard time for a long time opening up a sitter to daven and then I heard from the Rebbe that no matter how if we're like even feeling what's going on when we daven there are so many positive things that are happening in Shemayim with whatever we're creating with um, us being able to go up like the Rebbe said like think of davening as a ladder when you're davening, it's literally going from the bottom, just jumping to the top. So it's the most connected way that I can be connected with Hashem. And again, I may not want to connect with Hashem in this moment. I may be upset with him about something that happened. But like I said to, you know, one of my children at one point when we'd gone through a lot, I said, look, don't close the connection with Hashem. Talk to Hashem anyways, but tell him how upset you are. So sometimes that's davening. Sometimes that's what it looks like. So I want to end off with my favorite tefillah, which is also was also the Rebbe's favorite tefillah. There's a famous story about that. The tefillah of Maida'ani. So until I heard the explanation, I didn't connect with Maida'ani. And for me, it just shows like, wow, if I were to learn the tefillah, even if I open the sitter and I only connect with one tefillah and understand, that's okay. Maida'ani, how is it? So my husband had shared with me this vart. So Maida'ani... The word maida is the first word that a Jew says when we open our eyes, gratitude. And it's interesting because me, I was in a, in a, I'm in an emotional support group and my sponsor said to me at one point, she's like, Bashi, to help you with anxiety, maybe try to meditate in the morning. And I thought, what would I meditate on? And then I realized my psychologist was telling me that to treat anxiety, I should bring in gratitude and gratitude and anxiety can't exist at the same time. Try it. So I thought, oh, what would I meditate about? And then I realized we're so lucky as Yidin that we have my Da'ani, a, a, a prayer of gratitude. And it helped, me, it helped me so much with my anxiety first thing in the morning. So again, going back to the tefillah, my Da'ani, the first word is gratitude. So grammatically in Ivrit, if, we were to be in, if you were to be in Israel saying, I'm grateful, you wouldn't say modani. You'd say ani modeh. As a boy or animoda as a girl, right? I'm grateful, not grateful I am. You don't go around in Israel saying grateful I am or around the world. So the first word that a Jew says when they wake up is gratitude. No I. It's recognizing that there is a power greater than me, that Hashem gave me back my neshama right now. And I'll be honest, you know, after my mom passed away, I, didn't, I couldn't say my da'ani for quite a few months because I was so upset with Hashem and I couldn't thank him for my neshama when he just took my mother's. And I had to work through it and, and not work through it, but I had to just go through it and heal. Um, so my da'ani is grateful I am. So the first 
thing that I acknowledge is gratitude, that it's Hashem. Then the word I. Lefanecha, melechai v'kayam, right? That I'm recognizing that Hashem is so Hashem is so powerful. Hashem's a king. Hashem's the one who restored, gave me back my neshama. Shechazarta binishmasi, right? Hashem gave me back my soul. Bechemla. Bechemla means with mercy or with compassion. What does that mean? Even if I'm not deserving of my neshama today, maybe I did stuff yesterday that I'm not proud of, or I didn't do stuff that I could have done to connect with Hashem. Hashem is giving me back my neshama today because he has compassion, he has mercy. He wants to give me another day. And the last two words are so powerful. Raba emunasecha means you believe in me. Hashem, you believe in me. That's why you're giving me another day. You believe that I'm going to try to make this day the best day possible. And I'm going to try to live it to my fullest. So on that note, I wish everyone a beautiful Shabbos and looking forward to next week. You can send in your questions, comments, feedback to teentalkqna at gmail.com.